All right, here we go. Here's, where, here's what I'm thinking about doing. Uh, you know, um, everything Jesus did, this is the description of the top. Everything Jesus did, Jesus did in the Holy Spirit. It's very interesting. Everything he did, he was never without the Spirit. In past years, I've sort of talked to you about how everything Jesus did, he does with his body and blood. You remember the famous Luther thing where he says, once Jesus takes flesh from Mary, his body and blood are always there. So, you know, you put your hand through the world like this, and his body, you put your hand in some way through his body and blood. It's connected. Well, ever, the way Jesus was connected to his um, body and blood, you know, he was also connected to his spirit. So everything he did, he did in the spirit. Um, at Pentecost, Jesus gives that church, he blesses, I should just read what I've got here, Jesus blessed his church with that same spirit before ascending to heaven. So you remember how this works. Jesus goes up, the spirit comes down, the church goes out. That's what happens. Today, his spirit still gathers, seasons, illumines, strengthens, and uses us to share the divine work of bringing new, homes, new folks home to Christ. So I was trying to think about you. Um, probably the one thing that we've never probably paid enough attention to, but it's actually a good time to pay attention to it, is really the notion of you drawing other people near and feeling that responsibility for churching the world. We've brushed up against it. We've talked about it a little bit. But really, and partly you have to have, you have, to have a place that's welcoming to people. And I'm always struck by how hard it is for people to cross the threshold. And the primary reason they're going to cross the, cross the th threshold of a church, any church, is that you bring them. Most people join the church because a friend says to them, would you please come? So I think we need to think about that a little bit. And I'm going to try to show you, uh, at least today, a little bit from Pentecost, how that responsibility lies, not just with me, but, but with you. Um, to, to draw people near. We still have to think about the world. The world is becoming a bit of a darker place, and America is becoming, uh, you know, it's not really a Christian nation if it ever was. Uh, it certainly, you know, isn't now. And over the next few years, or hundred years, you know, the church has every possibility of becoming a minority again for a range of reasons, you know, from birth rates to lack of uh, evangelism to not having a compelling witness. There's a, there's a range of reasons. It's okay. The church does okay when it's not the majority, but I mean, it, um, uh, it suffers for it. Uh, you know, Rowan Williams, who just retired as the Archbishop of Canterbury, I saw an interview with him a week ago. He was flummoxed because British Christians are complaining about, complaining about persecution, which he said really amounts to you don't have favored status anymore. But he said, it's very difficult to listen to me say that you're persecuted when I fly somewhere and people are being shot or murdered or afraid that he said, or afraid they won't make it through the day because they're a Christian. So the world is becoming a tougher place. Now, the whole question is then, what do you do with that? Well, you know, I can't control the world, although occasionally I can send Fred Gady to Spain and try to help out. <laughs> but what I can do is work on my square block, and I can work in my, you know, 10 or 20 miles where I live, and you can too. St. John is really a remarkable place, and it's in a very, very good spot right now. It's a very loving, kind place, and I appreciate how much that people work to nurture that. I think, um, you know, we've learned, you know, over the time we've been together, we've learned to, you know, really cherish what we've got here. Um, the next step beyond that is to sort of say to your friends, and then even your enemies, um, this would be a good place to be for you. Now you have to watch how you do that, and it takes a lot of care, and you have to pay attention, you have to tend it. Uh, and I actually want to kind of talk about the resources the Holy Spirit has given each of you to live in the world, in your own life and as a witness. So that's generally where I'm going, okay? 
Come see the gifts you've already been given, chief among them the Holy Spirit. So the great thing is you have the Holy Spirit too. The same Spirit that Jesus always had, he gives that Spirit to you. By the way, John Kleinig, he had three things. Um, he had three things he said he would come and speak on a Saturday about, and I neglected to get right back to him. And he said, you know, how about if I do on the, how about if I talk on the Holy Spirit? So actually, just by happenstance, on the 12th, he will speak here, I think it's at 9 in the morning. Um, come have a cup of coffee. John will do two hours on the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's a notice already in life together. And then just for, because I put the wrong date in, it's on me. The catechumen, it starts the next week. If you know anybody who's coming, it starts the 19th, okay? 19th of October. So Kleinig here on the 12th, the catechumen on the 19th. Learn how the Father and the Son would like to use you, energized by the Spirit. And I actually want to talk about that. That verb is particular to the Spirit in the New Testament. The Orthodox are much more uh, ambitious about talking about the energy of the Spirit. It's not a common Lutheran word, but it is, a, it is a New Testament word that's given to the Holy Spirit, the sense of energy. And it, it, has a, it has a broader, or it has a more enthusiastic meaning than just strength. When we say, Jesus, make you strong, we use that so much it almost doesn't ring with us. But the notion that he gives you energy to do something is just a remarkable thing. And so we want to talk about the gifts he gives, the energy he gives you to use that, and what that looks like in your own life, okay? For the good of the church and the salvation of those around you. And we always have to remember that. Um, you know, we're trying to draw people out of darkness into light. Okay? So that's kind of where we're going until we're not going there anymore and we go somewhere else. Everybody good? All right, so number one, among the gifts that Jesus gives to each one of you is his Holy Spirit. That may seem obvious to you, but you should just remember that you are a receptacle of the Holy Spirit. That at your baptism, or when the word is spoken into you, when you're given the body and blood, you get the body and blood of Jesus, but you also get the Father and the Son because they're always working together. So the Holy Spirit is put into you as a gift, and the primary work of the Holy Spirit, here it is right here, is to make you holy. Now it sounds like a tautology, but often when people talk about the Holy Spirit, they talk about other things. They talk about prophesying, they talk about speaking in tongues, they talk about extraordinary things. Real honestly, every once in a while the Holy Spirit gives a burst of whatever he happens to do, just for fun, to keep you on your toes. But the primary work of the Holy Spirit, the primary work is to make you holy, okay? Now, immediately Lutherans have trouble with that. And the reason they have trouble with that is because they fail to distinguish law and gospel and justification and sanctification. So just if you keep in score at home, the law is a word that demands. The law is what God demands. Two words, the law, God demands. The gospel is God meets his own demands in Christ. Okay, so just kind of keep those on the side. The law is what God demands. Be holy as I'm holy, Leviticus 14, I think, 11. Be holy as I'm holy. That's a great demand on you. Be holy. God demands, and then he meets, and the gospel is, he meets his own demands in Christ. So law and gospel. And then justification and sanctification. It's terribly important. Even at the seminary, these... Um, these terms get muddled and students, you know, steam comes out of their ears because they don't know what they're talking about sometimes. They don't keep their terms straight. It's not they don't know what they're talking about. It's not, I didn't mean to say they're, they, they're ignorant. What I meant to say is they don't keep their terms straight. Justification is being forgiven. Sanctification is living forgiven. And you've got to know which one you're talking about. So look at the um, next two things. Well, look at the, look at the, look at the quote toward the bottom. Now, we are only halfway pure and holy. Now, if you're talking about justification, you're only halfway there. 
that would be a load of problems, including when I preach your, your, your funeral sermon, I have to say, well, Mrs. Hecht was a very nice person, but she only made it halfway there, so I guess it's either purgatory or straight to hell. Take your choice. Amen. Uh, you know, it's not very helpful. It's not very comforting. Uh, you know, uh, when we all come up here to have potato salad, it won't be that much fun. So, um, so here's the thing. You've got to know what you're talking about. You got, are you talking about your justified life? So it, when we're talking justification, a good work is a holy work is a forgiven work. 100%. Christ does it all. It's great stuff. Pure gospel. Just if you're keeping score, a good work is a holy work is a forgiven work. When somebody does, says, have you done any good works? It, it, the question really is, is your work been forgiven? Right? A good work is a holy work is a forgiven work. That's a justification talk. On the other hand, I'm not what I meant to be. You're not what you meant to be. I'm not the pastor, the father, the husband I should be. You're not either. That's why we have confession every morning when we come here, every Sunday morning. Because I'm not what I was meant to be. And so, um, you know, we have two things on here. Number one, the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to make us holy, and he makes us holy by carrying us. The Lutheran Confessions actually use the term that he carries us to the altar. Isn't that great? Or I, I heard the news this morning about, uh, you know, they had a bad week at Buckingham Palace. You know, they, they, they roughed up Prince Andrew in the Royal Gardens yesterday, apparently overnight. He wasn't so pleased. They thought he was another intruder. That's another story. But, I mean, twice in a week. But, but uh, you know, um, but, the, but the interesting thing was I was just listening to the court of mayor, and they, they interviewed a security guy, the previous head, and he said, what will they do? He said, well, they will review it, and then they will put it right which is a British phrase, to put it right. And I was thinking, you know what? That's actually a better, that's actually a better phrase. It's a, more, it's a more poignant phrase than make it right. To put it right means somebody actually does the putting. Well, in some sense, the Holy Spirit puts you right. How does he do that? He puts you at the font. He puts you at the altar. He puts the body and blood into your, into your, into your mouth. You know, we don't have it as obviously here, but... At the Eucharist, there's a thing called the epiclesis, which is very common in the church. Ours is kind of buried in there. Lutherans kind of presume it. But Catholics, Episcopal, Episcopalians, they pray a prayer to the Holy Spirit. Come down and make this bread and wine, the body and blood. We believe that too, which is just implicit for us because we believe that the Holy Spirit is always active in the Scripture. So when we say the words, our Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed, the Holy Spirit is active there. You see, the Holy Spirit, he's putting the body and blood into your mouth. He's putting you into the font to forgive your sins. He's putting his word into your ear. He puts it right. It'll be put right. You know? And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Now, the, that, that's, all, that's all justification talk. He makes you holy. He puts you right, okay? 100% all done. But now the question is, what's next? And that's what we want to talk about. So you've been given this great gift where we can say he carries us to the forgiving touch and enlivening blessing of Jesus and word and sacrament. So he brings us to Jesus and Jesus touches us and all is well. And that's great. But then also the confessions say, right now we're only halfway there. Right now, we're only halfway pure and holy. So the Holy Spirit must continue to work in us through the word, daily granting, until we've attained to that life where there will be no more forgiveness. Kleining has got me a little flummoxed. And so I'm, I'm going to be careful about what I say, knowing he's going to come and say something. I know not what it is. 
Um, the last time we were talking, he sort of said, well, you know, you can, you can never, you can never uh, possess the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a very interesting thing to say. I don't exactly know what he means, especially because we talk about demon possession, which would sort of be the opposite. But I know he's also not big on talking about, he talks in a different way about demons as well. So I'm very curious what he has to say. I think it means, I think what he means is we need this constant reception. That is, you can't dominate the Holy Spirit. And frankly, the reason people shrivel up and stop believing is because they grieve the Spirit as they they sort of push him away. Or he says to you, I'll come to you in your daily devotions. You say, I'm really not, I don't have time for that. Or he says, I'll come to you at the Eucharist. I'll come to you in the reading of the Word. I'm really busy, you know. One time in four is, you know, if I come 12 times a year. I'm always stunned when people think, you know, they come to church two or three times a year and they consider themselves Christians. I don't know that Jesus considers you a Christian in that way. And Jesus has much higher standards than we do. So, um, you know, this constant work of the Holy Spirit, what it looks like in us. So now let me follow the order I wrote. The primary work is to make us holy. He makes us holy by putting us at the means of grace, putting the Word into us, putting us at the Eucharist, by carrying us to the forgiving touch and the enlivening blessing of Jesus. And I'm giving you the large catechism. So if you want to follow along, if you don't have a large catechism, we can get you a paperback one or if you want to buy one. But basically, Luther said, the small catechism is the baseline for what you need to be baptized. And then the large catechism is, you know, when you keep going. So there's a large catechism too, and it talks about, you know, what the Holy Spirit does. I give you or remind you of past advice. Touch holy things. Don't touch unholy things. It makes complete sense. The Holy Spirit carries you to the altar where you touch holy things. And don't touch, holy, don't touch unholy things. Don't touch evil things. You know, gossip, pornography, lying, stealing, pride, envy. Those things undo what the Holy Spirit does. And so that means the reason you feel discombobulated is because you have this fist fight going on inside you between the Holy Spirit and the evil, the Catechism tells us, that comes from the devil, the world, and our flesh. So you have this constant assault of evil, some from your own heart, some from outside, some things that you touch and you shouldn't have touched that. Ah, don't touch that. It's just not good for you, you know? Um, So, you know, your sins just aren't good for you. The antidote to that is, you know, word and sacrament. Your baptism, the memory of that, confession, Eucharist. And the Holy Spirit is active in you through all that. Now, I haven't told you anything new. But what I'm afraid of is that we don't use the gifts that have been given to their full extent. So in a moment, we're going to talk about, for example, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, which come really interesting in the prophecy. The church has understood this in the prophecy um, from Isaiah 11, called him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and He shall be. And then it talks about when the Spirit descends on Jesus, it talks about what He will get. And the church has always understood that because you're drawn into Jesus through baptism and Eucharist, that you'll get those things too. Wisdom, for example, or discernment, or courage. We don't talk about those things very much. And their counterparts are the seven deadly sins. It's really interesting. The seven deadly sins undo the gifts of the Spirit. Right? So I want to talk about those because those things are always going on in your own Heart, not all, not all of them all the time, but the gifts are certainly given by proportion. I remember the Holy Spirit gives 
different gifts to different people. So some people have really good at one thing and some people are good at the other. And so the whole aim of the church is to find what people's strengths are and maximize those and then find what their weaknesses are and minimize those, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to discern what people, what people are good at. If you have the gift of, gift of hospitality, if you have the, the gift of generosity, if you have the gift of teaching, if you, whatever your gift might be, right? Barnabas the, has the gift of consoling people, getting people to work together who didn't like to work together. That's amazing stuff. So partly what we want to do is be, we, want to, we want to come to be aware of the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you in a very practical way. Sometimes you just need people who are courageous. Fortitude is how it's normally spoken of in the church, but it means courage. Sometimes in the church you just need people who will say, this is right and this is wrong and this is what we stand for. Okay? Or you need somebody who will say, this is what we're going to do and it's all going to be fine as, all as, as long as everybody pulls on the same end of the rope. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. So what I want to try to do over the course of the year is kind of pull those gifts out, have a look at them. You might begin to think whether you see it in yourself or in other people, and then you might see a little bit better where you fit and actually how your life can be in service to Christ and the church. Does that make sense? Are you still good? Questions about any of that? So that's where we're going. Hmm. Okay. Right at the bottom. Um, now we're only halfway pure and holy. The Holy Spirit must continue to work in us through the Word daily, granting us the forgiveness of sins. So there's the presupposition in the large catechism that you'll be at least, at the very least, reading Scripture, if not going to the Eucharist, daily granting forgiveness until we attain to that life where there's no more forgiveness. And I don't know if you've ever thought about heaven that way. One of the reasons heaven will be a place, a great place, is that there's no more forgiveness because there's nothing else to forgive. He says, this should be really, really, really interesting. And then once we are forgiven and drawn into the church, the Holy Spirit does his best to use us well. And all this, you know, goes under the broader term of maturity or living together in the Christian life. But, you know, I want to talk about what this will mean for our congregation. So, this means holiness is the most wonderfully practical thing. It is the basis for loving God and serving others, for having a wonderful congregation, a strong family, um, you know, a great society. Holiness is actually the basis. I mean, holiness covers everything we're talking about because holiness means to see as God sees and to do as God does, right? To choose the things that God chooses. It's very simple. I mean, the gospel for today, count the cost. See whether you're up to seeing as God sees, choosing as God chooses, okay? So, you know, that comes to us from outside as a, as a gift. Now... I just give you, these are all kind of Lutheran words. All these parentheses, this is still from the large catechism. So the large catechism, when you look at it, is numbered by paragraphs. So, you know, I just had to read through with just an eye for all the words that are used of the Holy Spirit in regard to dealing with you personally. So, shy and mysterious, yet divine and powerful. So he's shy. Remember, the Holy Spirit never calls attention to himself. And we, we're not going to talk much about tongues and prophecy, although, I'll, I mean, I can tell you the answer really quickly. And then, you know, if you want to talk about it, we can, but it's not the most interesting thing. Um, the thing about tongues is, you know, fantastic. And um, if you say something that, um, you know, if you say something, you know, that we don't know, we'll say, well, we'll see. 
And if you say something we don't know, then we'll say, um, you know, uh, if you say something you know, we say, well, we knew that from Scripture. If you say something we don't know, we'll say, you know, kind of we'll see. Same with prophecy. I mean, you remember prophecy is kind of a high-stakes game. It's always interesting that, and I've said this to you before, only half-mockingly, the penalty for, for being a false prophet in the Old Testament is stoning. So if you stand up and say, I have the gift of prophecy and this is going to happen, like, oh, I don't know, all through the 70s, you say the world is going to end and Russia's the great bear and China's coming and we'll all be dead by 1978, and say so you have a TV show and make a million bucks off people saying that, and it doesn't happen by, oh, I don't know, January 1st of 1979, the church has to stone you. <laughs> because you stood up and said, thus says the Lord, and it didn't happen, you see. I mean, Jesus is really sensitive to people standing up and say, Jesus says, the Father says, and this is always the, he and the Pharisees. You know, you have a law that says, but my Heavenly Father says, right? Or they say, you're blaspheming, you speak for God. He's like, well, we'll see, you know. His stuff tends to come true. So the thing, the, the gifts are fantastic. Um, the gifts of healing, the gifts of, you know, tongues of, of, of prophecy, those gifts are fantastic. If you know somebody who ha happens to have them, I think I told you I had Ron Forehand was in dinner or was in town for his 50th anniversary. He's quite ill with Parkinson's now, but we met him for dinner. But I remember he said early in his career, he said, and he, Ron, if you know him, you know he's been here to help us, and he was in church last week. He's not a man given to, you know, excess or extreme or you know in any way. But he said early in his career, he had a doctor in his congregation. And he's just something about this doctor. He said the doctor said every once in a while he'd be examining a patient. And he said he would just have this sense of, you know, something unusual happening. And he could occasionally, when he had this sense, touch people and heal them. See, I mean, now, now Ron's not a guy given to, and this doctor was almost sort of embarrassed about it. It does happen. I've met people in Wheaton, too, completely respectable people who I had coffee one morning with a, a guy who was an evangelical. I met him through somebody else, and he'd been ill for a while. And... There was a nun who was coming from Europe, and she had the gift of healing. And they had, you know, he met her. Some friends said, you know, he'd been suffering for I should meet her. And he was very an anti-Catholic guy. And he said, she was probably used to this from evangelicals. He said, well, you could touch me, but he said, only if you say, Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus and atonement on the cross is the only way for anybody to be saved. This nun kind of just starts laughing. She's like, yeah, yeah, I know that. <laughs> And then she touched him and healed him. So, I mean, he's a big skeptic. I mean, I, I, you know, he's around. He's alive. He's like, you know, you can explain it any way you want. That kind of stuff happens if it happens. So this is kind of my, that's what I'm not really going to talk about. Because here's the thing. If it shows up, then you deal with it. But if it's divisive, if it doesn't come true, if it always hangs out there, if it never comes true, people are, then people are a fraud and they're taking advantage of you. So that's not the most important thing. You know, that's not the most important thing to talk about, although if any of you individually want to talk about that, I'm very open to, you know, if that's been in your life or if you've seen it or if something has happened, I'm very, it would be remarkable to have, you know, somebody who had the gift of healing. If you make enough hospital calls or go to enough nursing homes, you really wish you had it. But, um, you know, that's not the main thing I'm going. I'm just kind of going, this is the meat and potatoes way that your church should run. And this is what happened actually in the early church. I'm going to show you in the early church. Pentecost was this great spectacular day. Boom, 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 boom. Light, noise, and everything is going on. And then very quickly, things settle into the rhythm of the Christian life. Boom, 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 boom. This is what we do. And often people, especially around Wheaton, you'll hear this, especially among college, because I always say, well, 
they say, I want to go to an Acts 2 church. I'm like, well, then you should come to St. John. See, they think Acts 2 is like all lights and fireworks. Yeah, occasionally. You know, every once in a while, the Red Sea parts, like every 4,000 years or so. <laughs> but in between, you know, you really got to do a little bit of work, okay? Which is where usually you find yourself. If you want an Acts 2 church, then you settle into the rhythm, Christ, Scripture, Prayer, the Divine Liturgy, Mercy, Witness, Tithing, and there's an eighth one, actually, Growth. And we'll talk about those. That's where the church is meant to go, okay? Um, so the question is, the people who teach in churches that speak in tongues, what's the benefit? Um, so here's what I would want to, I want to at first be respectful and not tell the Holy Spirit what he can and can't do. So there can be some benefits, which is it can be a, a way of revelation. It can be a, a creation of unity. Um, it can be a way that God works. The problem is, is the claims far outstrip the number of times that it actually happens. And the two things that happen is, is, Remember that Scripture says you have to have somebody there to interpret. So if you speak in tongues and I interpret, and then it's not true, they should at least stone me, but with my dying breath I'm going to say stone him too. Okay? Because, because it is a way of, you're actually saying, I have, a, I, have a, I, have, I have something from God. And so, for instance, in the early church when they say, and this is not the kind of people, things that people talk about, you know, we're always talking about the end of the world and the Antichrist and the lake of fire. You know, what are they doing when they get prophecy in Scripture? It's like, you know what? There's going to be a, the Lord told me there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem. We should probably take an extra collection so they don't starve to death. They're a kind of basic thing. Our friends are going to go hungry because there's going to be a famine. It's not unlike, you know, seven fat cows and seven skinny cows in Egypt. We've seen this before. There's going to be a famine. Save up your money. It's not a very, that's not a very interesting kind of prophecy until you get hungry. You know, usually the other prophecies seem like they're so much more interesting, you know, lightning and flashes and blah, blah, blah. That's not the predominant thing that's going on. In the predominant way of the church, and it's much, much harder, is to live in mercy, to live in forgiveness and love, to live in generosity. That's a much harder way to live than to occasionally have this burst where you get everybody excited, right? So that's what we're going for. And more than that, we want to be able to draw people into that because that's what makes you fully human. And that's no longer halfway. It pushes you toward being what you're meant to be, to go to a place where there's no more forgiveness. Make sense? So I'm, just, I'm sort of just telling you where I am going, where I'm not going. Because it's not that interesting. It's, it's okay. I mean, it's interesting. And some of the things, like healing, are extraordinarily practical. But it's not the common thing. Um, it's not the common thing. Okay? Still good? So shy and mysterious, divine and powerful, the Spirit's joyful work. And it actually said, this is his happy work. This is what the Holy Spirit likes to do all day. Okay, this is what he does. Jesus now all day prays for you. He sits Hebrews and Romans, Romans 8 and Hebrews 12. He sits at the Father's hands and he prays for you. He looks down and says, Byron, he said, you might want to bump and nudge Byron just a little bit here. I'm like, I think the Father reaches down like just moves you two degrees to the right and then... You tell Carol you're perfect and completely tuned up, okay? When she gets back, you just say, Jesus has been working on me. The baby Jesus made me what I'm meant to be, okay? So that's what he does. And the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does is fills the world trying to draw people, trying to put them to Jesus, carry them to Jesus. So he's creating, seeking, finding, calling, revealing, offering, preaching, applying, kindling, right? Warming us, illumining us, making us light, not darkness. 
resurrecting, gathering, uniting in love, leading, energizing, nourishing, teaching, and using us. He puts us into the church, and we're meant to stay there and do the work he gives us to do. So the quote from the Confessions, large catechism, until the last day, the Holy Spirit remains with the holy community, or the Christian church, Christian people. Through it, so that would mean through you, okay? He's not, he's not doing all the work himself. I mean, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. I mean, you have a cross too. It's the one that he gives you, but you have work to do. Through it, he gathers us, using us, using it, the church, using us to teach and preach the word. By it, he creates and increases sanctification. We get better and better. We're always aiming to get better and better. And here's what happens. You know, I've told you this a gazillion times, and you know it yourself. You get better. You suffer like crazy. You try not to backslide. It's so flippin' painful. And you get better and better. You come out the other side, and then, you know, it's so painful. And your life, everybody's spiritual life cycles. I mean, you could read Paul. You read Peter. Read the apostles. Their lives cycled. Like, you know, 11 of 12 of them were martyred. That's a cycle in your life. And, as we've talked about before, every challenge is the opportunity to do good. So right at the point where they're Skin and Barnabas alive, you know, you usually get the option of saying, I renounce Christ and they let you go free. You know, that's an, op that's an opportunity to do good. Yours are not that dramatic, but they are equally important. The importance of being a good parent, of being a good member of a congregation, of being generous of being loving as your affect. And we all have to work on that because we have bad days, we have challenges, we say things we wish we wouldn't have said, we do things we want, wish we wouldn't have done. And it's hard to forget those things about ourselves and it's hard to forget them about other people. And yet by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what forgiveness means. It means we try to do better and we forgive the places we don't and we pick up and we keep going. That's what the church is. And there's no place else in the world that looks like that. And that's the reason people will come to the church. If you wonder why people won't come to the church, you can't get a good enough cover band. You know, you're not better than Springsteen. I mean, go buy Coldplay tickets if that's what you want to do, okay? There's no way that we can be better than Disney. We just don't have enough money for lighting, okay? You know, we just can't. But what we can do is give you the Eucharist, which will change you. And you can live in a changed way. The most important thing is you. Once the Holy Spirit has forgiven you and used you, the most important thing is how he uses you. I mean, that sounded horrible. I probably should spin the tape back. The most important thing is Christ in you, the Spirit in you, how Christ uses you. But you're important. Christ went to the cross for you, but not for nothing. That was the start, not the end. Okay? So, um, you can already hear, you know, faith, hope, love, the gifts that are given. Um, and somewhere along the way, if this helps you, we'll kind of, I'll kind of see how this goes. We'll look at the, um, the seven gifts of the Spirit, and maybe there's also things called the seven virtues and the seven deadly sins. These things tend to come in sevens because the church liked that number. But we should take a look at those and see what it means for each of you to have those. You still okay? Okay, I'm just trying to give you the whole shot. Question about any of this? This isn't new, but it should be more in-depth. Yes, Mr. Orton. Right. I believe I can't believe. The most remarkable thing to say. Which is um, why all this notion of he carries you there or he puts you there or passive verbs. 
you are baptized. You don't baptize yourself as you did in other religions. So if you wanted to join a mystery religion, you'd wash yourself up. Even if you wanted to be, become a Jew, that you'd go through cleansings, ritual baths. But here you're completely passive. I mean, poor, you know, Pastor Nelson takes that poor 12-year-old and holds him underneath. <laughs> Makes that big splash. You know, I mean, that was something that Nelson did to him, and I'll testify in court if I have to. That was done to him. <laughs> huh? Yeah, it's done, it's done to you. Okay, still good? Listen to this. This is gorgeous stuff. And this is where I want to go. This isn't something little, nor is it something lost in the past. No, it's not something little. Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, we know the sequence. There are three great feasts. Our Lord was born. He lived a human life. He grew, and at the age of 30, he began to proclaim the coming of God's kingdom and brought him to the cross. He died, he rose, he ascended into heaven, and he took a seat at the right hand of God. That is the story. But why? For what purpose? Why Christmas? Why Easter? Pentecost is the answer. And I just don't know if you think about that. Pentecost is the answer. You know, this is, these are the great questions of philosophers, but also of the Christian life. Where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where am I going? It's just very simple questions. It's everything from Greek philosophers to, you know, you can read Eastern religions. It actually, it was interesting in, in La Sagrada Familia in Spain, this crazy, wild, wonderful. It starts by saying, this cathedral means to answer the great questions of, of life. Where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where am I going? Okay. Pentecost is the answer. Everything Jesus did, he did in the Spirit, moved by the Spirit, and he did it all. This is great. He did it all so that the Spirit might come on us. Now, we regularly say, we're used to saying, he went to the cross so that I could be forgiven. He went to the cross so forgiveness could come on us. We're very used to that. But you also need to think in this way. He did this all that his spirit might come on us. It is to your advantage that I go away, he said at the Last Supper, for if I do not go away, the counselor, the advocate, the spirit, it's this great word which means you know, he's the guy who's always for you pleading your case. Better than you are, he's a professional. You know, you're not, I'm not. But if I go, I will send him to you, John 16. The Holy Spirit the third person of the Blessed Trinity, the Lord and giver of life, as we call him in the Creed, comes today as the fruit of Christ's mission, the completion of his Paschal mystery. So the Spirit is tied to Easter. Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended in the Spirit. And when he ascended, he sent his Spirit to all of us. Christ was put to death for our trespasses and rose again for our justification. And it is the Holy Spirit, through baptism and the other sacraments, who brings us that justification. That's why when we say, the body of Christ for the forgiveness of all your sins, the blood of Christ for the forgiveness, that's justification, forgiveness. It touches you and you get forgiven. That being made right with God, the forgiveness of sins and the life of grace, it's He who enables us to live Christ-like lives. You can't do it yourself. We never run by our own steam. It's he who gathers people of every nation together, brings them to faith, brings them into the church, and reconciles the world to God. No, this isn't a little thing, a little postscript to the story of Jesus. It's rather what everything leads up to. This is really phenomenal stuff. 
that all of that, I mean, personalize this. The reason all this happened is for you, for this congregation. It's terribly important to think that way. The Father sent his Son into the world so that the Son, so that through the Son, the Spirit might transform the world. And so you know this great text, uh, the great word transfiguration, metamorphuo, that happens to Jesus on the, on the, um, at the transfiguration. There's a metamorphosis, a transfiguration. That's actually used of you as well. You're transfigured in some sense. You're transformed in some sense. It isn't a little thing. And it isn't a past thing either. It wasn't just for the 12 or 120 disciples or just for those first 3,000 believers. Nunc quoque, says the colic we pray today. This was written on Pentecost. Now too, now too, so also for us too, now too, 3,000 years, 2,000 years later, now too, pour out the same spirit into the hearts of believers and through them into the whole world. We believe and have been baptized for the forgiveness of sins. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We've been confirmed, sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Svargas is the word. It's when you get your anointing at baptism, which is a terribly critical reason then to baptize because the text presumes that. We've been confirmed, sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. He has put his seal upon us, Svargas, and given us his spirit into our hearts as a guarantee. You know, so when you go to heaven, and you know, I've always said to you, when you get there, they say, if people say to you, why are you here? You say, well, Jesus baptized me. Jesus gave me his body and blood. You can also say, because the Holy Spirit sealed me. Passive verb, he did it to me, 100%. And then the blast furnace, and then the joy of heaven, where there's no forgiveness because there's no sin. We have our post-baptismal sins forgiven in the sacrament of reconciliation. So you go to baptism, and all your sins are forgiven, okay? And then, of course, you go home and you sin because you didn't get the baptismal gift you want, and somebody cries. There's always somebody crying at confirmation or baptism or Christmas, isn't there? Well, maybe it's just at our house. <laughs> no, I've been to your houses, too. There's always somebody crying. Somebody feels left out, right? So what are you going to do? You have the gift. I mean, it's, he's a Catholic writer. He says reconciliation. We say absolution, and, of course, our confessions say you know, you can talk about absolution on its own as a sacrament, or you can talk about it as part of baptism. It works both ways for us. It doesn't matter if you say two or three. Confessions, we've talked about this even says ordination can be considered a sacrament. Four, when Lutherans get all the way to four in the large catechism. So, you know, don't, don't get, you know, don't let that be a glitch for you. Um, think about it in a Lutheran way. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain them, they're retained. We eat the body of Christ, which is broken. This is a great phrase which is broken to release the spirit it contains. So you have this sense of, remember, do you have fizzies when you were a kid? Who had fizzies when you were a kid? Kay, you had fizzies. You have fizzies? You grew up in the Depression, you didn't get fizzies. <laughs> See, my generation got fizzies. Did you get fizzies? Fizzies are great. Did you ever put them in your mouth without putting them in the water? <laughs> it's like fizzies. That's what he means to say here. This is like fizzies, you know? It releases the Spirit, right? We're given the Spirit to drink, says St. Paul. Isn't that interesting? We're given the Spirit to drink. Go read it. It's very interesting. You drink the Spirit. We're very used to saying, you know, we drink the body and blood. You drink the Spirit. Why can he say that? Well, of course, the Father and the Spirit are always there together. You know, they never, nobody's ever, they're not separated. The Trinity means they're always, all three of them there, cooperating in any work and each doing what's specific to them. 
When we cry, Abba, Father, it's the spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God. When we don't know how to pray as we ought, the spirit himself intercedes for us. I just push you back. That's Romans 8.26. Everybody always quotes that. If you go back about 10 verses in Romans, it actually starts by saying that Jesus is praying for you. We often miss that. It's so cool, though. It says, Jesus is praying for you, so all things work together for the good of those who love God. And then when things don't go bad, remember that the Spirit is praying for you. Isn't that great? So Jesus and the Spirit spend all their time praying for you. It's so great. And each of us can say with St. Paul, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. And that's what we're going to aim at. What does it mean to live free in Christ Jesus? So this is not going to be a thing about, like, you know, bossing you around. And that's actually your question about tongues and prophecy and all that. One of the characteristics is it often can get bossy. So I'm a bit better than you because I have it and you don't have it. And by the way, you should do what I say because I have it. Right? There's no freedom in that. Okay? Chris, move that way one. Just, just move your tip, shut your head. Karen Crawford, how are you back there? What's the question? Yes. No, because this is a very specific, you remember that this is given specifically to pastors, and we read this in ordination. So you can only ask for forgiveness. I'm sorry, let's see, let me get this. I'm up against the clock, and you ask a really good question. <laughs> you can only forgive the sins committed against you. The pastor forgives the sins committed against Christ. That's a whole other Bible study for another year. But that's what pastors are given to do. So in this, there's a specific verse about Jesus breathed on the disciples, on the apostles, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he's going to ascend, so he says, you'll go do my work. If you forgive sins, they're forgiven. And if you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. He says that to the apostles and the pastors who follow. Now, I will just ask you, it's a very odd situation to be in a church where the pastor can say to you, I forgive you, but it takes a voters meeting to excommunicate somebody. That doesn't seem to me to fit with the text. Just think that through. That was a little bit of American democracy gone awry. Okay? So, and the, and the pastor, because he speaks for Christ, such a thing would be impossible for a pastor to say, and here's the reason why, because Christ forgives every sin that's brought for forgiveness. So the only ones that are retained are the ones you hold back, and the only sin against the Holy Spirit, which people are always so fearful about, is if you keep some sins at home and don't bring them along on Sunday. There's some for later you'd like to bash Dave over the head with about 3 p.m. today. You got, nine, you got 100 and you only brought 99. You can't forgive them if they're not brought there. Make sense? No? So the point is you are forgiven. Yeah, even if people won't be forgiving of you, you are forgiven. I got to go to church Karen, is it going to be quick? You always ask big questions, wife moving. I'm going to have to slow down and get the full story. Uh, no, I'm serious. Do you have nieces and nephews being baptized today? Karen comes from a Jewish family. This is why it gives me pause. And her father is a very, very kind, polite Jewish man who I've come to know over the years. So there's a bit of a disconnect here. And I did actually say, no big questions with this much time left. <laughs> so when you look at me like I can't understand what's going on, you're right, I can't understand what's going on. Let me just say I'm happy for your niece and nephew. I actually would like to hear the story on a day when we have more time. Um, 
Last line, the Holy Spirit is not an option. He is our deepest need. If he's your deepest need, we should probably spend some time figuring out how to have as much as we can. Okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. 